What if one of the most influential atheists changed his mind and now believes in God? That's exactly what has happened. This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. I'm Kevin Harris. Pat Zuckerin is a scholar, author, speaker, and Christian apologist who travels the world defending the faith and presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, an interview with a man who has written the biography of Antony Flew, one of the most influential atheists who is no longer an atheist. This is going to be fascinating. You can get the entire series when you go to evidenceandanswers.org. That and other resources at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat? Yes, thanks, Kevin. We have a fascinating interview today about one of the most notorious atheists in the world today, a giant in the world of philosophy. His name is Anthony Flew. And there has been a significant and official biography written about this man. And I have the author of the biography here, journalist and author, and he is also a sponsor of several conferences on science and religion, Mr. Roy Varghese. He's the co-author with Anthony Flew on the official biography of this man, There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. So, Roy Varghese, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pat. Well, tell us about yourself. You sponsor these conferences, and this is how you came in touch with many of these significant atheist philosophers and scientists. Tell us about this. Uh, Pat, I've, uh, for the last, I guess, uh, almost 25 years, I've been working in this area of science, religion, and philosophy. And I've had the honor of um, interacting with some of the leading scientists and philosophers from across the world, mainly the the Western world, actually. And um, I've organized conferences. I've edited books where we've had several leading thinkers who have um, – we've also engaged people who have opposing views. But what's startling is that some of the leading philosophers of today as well as prominent scientists have, believe in God for rational uh, on rational grounds. And so that's what I've tried to bring out to a popular audience. Yes, and these are some of the major scholars of our time. These are not obscure men. These are some of the major thinkers on the university campuses today. Absolutely. And, and one book I had contributors, 24 Nobel Prize winners as contributors, it was called by Time magazine, the year's most intriguing book about God. And most people think somehow there is a disconnect between science and belief in God. This certainly is not the opinion of most of the pioneers of modern science and certainly of many great scientists of our day today. Who is Anthony Flew and what is the significance of his stature in the world of philosophy, especially among atheists? Anthony Flew is probably the atheist atheist in terms of being probably the most influential, uh, most systematic, thoroughgoing atheist philosopher of the last 50 years. No one has developed new arguments for atheism the way that Flew has. Most atheists, their atheism either is a byproduct of some philosophy they have, like Jean-Paul Sartre, or they just focus their attention on um, attacking the arguments for God's existence. It's kind of a reaction. Whereas Anthony Flew, in his books, developed original arguments for atheism. He kind of set the agenda for atheism and to some extent for philosophy of religion. To give you an example, his first book, Theology and Falsification, which that particular essay was the most widely 
reprinted uh, essay in philosophy in the last 100 years. His critique of God there centered on the fact that nothing seems to count against belief in God because everything we could say is, well, you don't understand it or you qualify it. So he said, you know, it dies the death of a thousand qualifications. His second major work, God and Philosophy, he said that before we try to prove God's existence, we should first show that the concept of God is coherent. His, his third major work, The Presumption of Atheism, he says atheism should be the default position uh, and the burden of proof is on the theist. Now, a man who developed, and there was nothing quite like this in the world of atheism, but a man who developed these major arguments for atheism, set the agenda for atheism, for him now to change and declare that there is a God, and he said there is a God on the grounds, on purely rational grounds. He calls it a pilgrimage of reason. He said the existence of the laws of nature, the existence of teleologically organized life, and the very existence of the universe led him to um, affirm and accept the existence of a creator. Yes, I think uh, David Hume is the last great giant among the atheists, and then following him, I mean, I believe everyone built their arguments on Hume's arguments, and then Flew is one who was able to match and uh, make an impact, I believe, like Hume did in our day, didn't he? Absolutely. In fact, he is a great human scholar, too. Mm-hmm. And so, the and, you know, uh, the last major atheist from the, was from the Enlightenment times, and Hume definitely was, even Kant kind of owed his a lot of his thinking in that area to Hume. So you're right, Hume did say it, but flew kind of went beyond Hume in the kind of arguments he presented in defending atheism, although he was very much a human. So his reversal and his critique of Hume as well is uh, doubly significant. Yes, uh, Kevin and I are familiar with Flew. Those of us in the world of Christian apologetics know that Anthony Flew and his arguments were the ones you needed to address in this whole world of Christian apologetics and in the defense of the Christian faith. He was uh, the the a giant there as far as uh, the atheist philosophers and the guys you had to address, a significant figure. I think that we need to, to point out that Dr. Plew has not become a Christian as of this recording, but it is just huge. It's titanic that he no longer is an atheist. You could breathe his name among uh, only a handful of people who are atheist philosophers in history. Yeah, Roy, you made an analogy. You said it'd be similar to someone like C.S. Lewis becoming an atheist. No question about it. And actually, the atheists are furious. I mean, uh, in fact, I I would say more uh, the popular level atheists because he was kind of the champion, the standard bearer. He was having second thought for quite some time, and they kind of persuaded him to write an article uh, called Sorry to Disappoint, but I'm still an atheist way back uh, um, about uh, seven years ago, and uh, six, seven years ago, they persuaded him to write that because they were so worried he might change sides. And so they've been, and and ever since he announced his change officially, it was in 04, they've been after him with everything they could. I mean, try to intimidate him, They've, uh, but he won't be swayed. I mean, he, he, he came to this decision. Of, his motto has always been, I go where the argument leads me. And this is where it's led him, and no one's going to bully him, ridicule him into changing his position. And they've tried. Mm -hmm. Well, now, in your book, we begin 
The early chapters begin with Anthony Flew describing his journey into atheism. His father was actually a preacher, I believe, in the Methodist Church. And then he traces his journey into atheism. Uh, describe that journey for us briefly. Well, um, his father was a renowned Methodist uh, minister and, uh, you know, world-renowned. In fact, in fact, he was uh, one of the founding members of the World Council of Churches. Uh, but, you know, he did mentioned to me once that he'd be turning in his grave. He, I mean, Flew has mentioned that his father would be turning in his grave if he saw where the World Council of Churches was today. But at any rate, he was a giant in the, in, in the Christian world in England at the time when uh, Flew was growing up. Interestingly enough, Flew's change of mind took place around the age of 13, which I'm told that that's a significant age for people in general. That's when they formed their beliefs. And he was at this boarding school, and he was he decided. I mean, the primary reason for his change was the problem of evil. How can evil be reconciled with an omnipotent God? It wasn't any new insight that led him to that position, but it was it was that problem of evil that led him. And then he kept it secret from the family for a long time. And when he was in Oxford, he made you know he wrote this paper, which became a you know celebrated uh, defense of atheism. And the word leaked back later, much to the disappointment of the family. Yeah, I believe some of the evil he witnesses, some of the greatest in world history. I believe the evil of the Nazi empire in World War II. Exactly. Yes, that was something that had a tremendous impact on him. And so that was his journey in his early teen years. And, in, and into his adult life, he began teaching at Oxford University. He was Is at that- Oxford first, then he uh, moved on to Aberdeen. Then um, there was the University of Kiel. He became quite established there. Then he was ended at Reading. In the meantime, in between all of this, he did teach at uh, universities in in Canada as well as the U.S. He was a visiting professor also at Bowling Green in Ohio and so on. So he was – and he also traveled. He was in high demand in different countries, Russia – I mean China and uh, various Asian countries, various Eastern European countries – so he was he was quite in demand for his uh, writings, you know, on Hume, on atheism, on all those kinds of topics. Right. So as he began his scholarly research, he began to more crystallize his position. And uh, tell us about uh, the significant impact he had as an atheist in changing the atheist arguments against God. Well, paradoxically, um, as one of his... Well, his first paper, Theology and Falsification, I mentioned, um, you know, uh, essentially tried to show that the concept of God is vacuous because or empty because when you um, when you confront evil in the world, the Christian says, well, God is still loving, but even despite the evil, and he says you keep on making qualifications, ultimately there isn't any base. I mean, it, it dies the death of a thousand qualifications. That's that particular approach had a great impact in terms of as a negative argument against theism. However, what he says is that this article wasn't really directed against Christianity. It was actually an attempt to discuss topics on of religion again, because at the time when he wrote this, the philosophy of logical positivism had a death grip on all discussions. Because the logical positivists, uh, led by uh, A.J. Ayer, said that basically all statements in religion regarding religion or morality are meaningless. 
and so there's no point in discussing it. To say whether God exists or not is a meaningless question. But he wanted to bring back the question of God and then into the philosophical discussion. And in so doing, he launched his first, he challenged the theists to come up with reasons for why they believe and in clarifying what it is they mean by God. In so doing, he unwittingly set the agenda for modern philosophy of religion as well. Because since then, there's been a whole stream of major analytic philosophers who have responded precisely to the kind of uh, demands that he made. I mean, there's been numerous books by analytic philosophers going into great detail on the concept of God, the, the, the idea of all the different divine attributes and so forth. Right. Well, that was his journey into atheism. And then he began examining his beliefs and the evidence out there. And the second part of your book talks about his journey eventually into theism. Briefly summarize that for us a little. Well, in summary, I think he had been, when the Big Bang Theory became quite prominent, he had written, already started writing articles in the late 80s, early 90s, saying the contemporary con uh, cosmological consensus has to be recognized as an embarrassment for atheists. So he he realized that if the universe is a beginning, then that's a problem. You know, so he had started already making those kinds of noises way back. Wow, because but, whatever has a beginning must have a cause. Yes. Right? So so that was um, so he basically had started um, emphasizing or, or or drawing attention to that. But what really was a major influence in his changing his mind? I would. I would cite two things. One is what's little known is that there's a writer called David Conway um, who wrote a book called The Rediscovery of Wisdom. Now, that book had a more of an impact on flu than anybody or anything else because in that book he really exposes the flaws of both the positivist or and materialist approach to, to existence and to the world, etc., while also underlining the um, the in, inexplicable uh, mystery surrounding the origin of life, because and there it was not on the scientific aspect of the origin of life; it was on the fact that all living beings are end directed or goal centered. Now, how can you have such beings in a universe of mindless matter, end centered, you know, uh, beings that? what the expression was teleologically directed. You know, they have a purpose. How do you have such beings springing out of rocks? And and then the second question is, point is that they can replicate themselves. They can reproduce. That's a great mystery. How is that possible? So both of these things were highlighted by Conway. These were, I believe, or not, well, this is what uh, Flew has said. The, this was for him the major factor that led him to the existence of God. Now, in addition to that, there is, of course, the DNA, the complexity of the DNA. And he has subsequently, in many forums, he said that if the integrated complexity of the physical universe would give someone like Einstein good enough reason to talk of a superior mind, the far richer, far greater complexity of the biological world gives all the more, you know, even far more reason for pointing to a creator. Oh, so for Anthony Flew, it was cosmological argument, but also the design that he saw in the universe and the fact that uh, Darwinian evolution is 
and inadequate theory that can explain the origin and diversity of life. Is that what you're saying? What I'm saying, yeah, the origin of life, um, the naturalistic or physicalistic or chemical explanation of life originating, just didn't cut it because you know the, it was that was a biological way to look at it, mm-hmm. and he saw that the issue went far beyond the biological. And I think most of the critics. Whether they're scientists or uh, even some of the atheist critics have not grasped what is being said here, which is that you're talking about a universe of matter coming up with beings that purpose-driven and directed. They have a goal. How is that possible? That's what to him. And then not only that are they and directed, but they also replicate themselves. How is replication possible? Nobody, I mean, we take it for granted. We see it all the time. But reproduction, how is that possible? Two things come together and something else comes. That whole thing is, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, entirely inexplicable. That's significant here. Well, what does Anthony Flew believe today and why is this important? Well, I mean, I think his change of mind with regard to God's existence I mean, that is huge simply for the reasons both of you have said. You know, he was such a, a, titan, in, in, a, a, a titan in the world of atheism, and for him to change is as dramatic as C.S. Lewis becoming an atheist. Um, and what does he believe today? Well, I have to say as, uh, uh, that he is not a Christian. He, does, he is a deist in the sense that he believes in a creator, he believes in a god, but he does not believe in divine revelation or intervention. However, he's open to it. He's open to evidence related to it. Now, this openness didn't happen just yesterday. I mean, it, it all throughout his career. In 1966, he wrote the book God and Philosophy, and he said he wanted Christians to respond to it. He wanted to engage them on the arguments relating specifically Christian claims. So he's been open ever since, and he debated Gary Habermas on several occasions, other Christian thinkers. And he also had said in our book, um, the, we have an appendix by uh, the great New Testament scholar and N.T. Wright giving the arguments for the historicity of Christ as well as the resurrection of Christ and so on. And, and, and Flew said this is the most powerful case he has seen for Christian theism. He is nevertheless not a Christian. You know, we've had Gary Habermas on this show, and they've done a couple of famous debates on the resurrection of Jesus. The flu Habermas debates on the resurrection are uh, are really uh, uh, something that many students of apologetics and theology will, will go to. And as I understand, Roy, they've remained good friends. Well, Gary, I think, has had a huge influence on Tony as well. I mean, uh, like I said, Conway's book, but Gary's, you know, has kept, him, you know, engaged on these issues. And I think Guy Gary's arguments had a huge uh, impact on Tony as well. I mean, in terms of, you know, he's opening the doorway to these things. And I think, um, and he, he still considers him a very good, great friend of us. And I think Gary has a lot to do with this. Just looking on the internet, it seems as though Anthony Flew has become a political football of sorts, because you've got atheist writing to him and saying, no, 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 you know, and then Christians writing to him and encouraging him. He has really become <laughs> quite a quite a political football. <laughs> he, no question about it. He has he has become 
unwillingly <laughs> like a volleyball being tossed back and forth <laughs> but he uh, or a football <laughs> but you know the other day I was speaking to him I said I'm, I'm sorry this has caused so much he said no you this has been interesting in his old age to have this kind of and but one thing is you know nobody can push him to something where the Christians can make him believe in Christ unless he really believes in it and the atheists cannot make him retract they've tried every which way they can for three years ever since the announcement they've they maligned his uh, uh, motives they've uh, said that he's lost his mind they've said that uh, you know he's he's a helpless puppet in the hands of the Christians all kinds of stuff but he knows his own mind and yeah. and he, he sticks clear to where what he believes I think that we ought to reemphasize the New York Times did an article on this and it was not a positive article as far as his his recent conversion away from atheism. And the New York Times writer says, well, he's getting old and he's losing his mind and that's why. So, again, it was this has not gone unnoticed by major media. Exactly. And and the New York Times article was quite a, a blatant misrepresentation of Tony's state of mind. Now, here's clearly the case. He has what he calls nominal aphasia and problem remembering names. Um, you know, sh- you know, people he met like two days ago or something that happened to him, he can't remember those kinds of things. Now, after the age of 40, everybody starts forgetting. Mm-hmm. That's a biological fact, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start forgetting. But when it comes to arguments, what happened 30 years ago, 20 years, I mean, all of those things is clear. And he is especially effective when he's, he, even today, he writes for major magazines, skeptic mag. I mean, mainly, you know, unbelieving magazines. I mean, non-believing mag. He writes articles there defending his position or on expressing his view on something. I mean, he. you can see that he knows exactly what's going on. But with these guys, it's if uh, the question is a no-win situation. If you believe in my, uh, if you believe in God, you've lost your mind. Or if you've lost your mind, you start believing God. So that I mean, so now, but that's why I said when in 2001 in the journal uh, Philosophy he wrote this um, very uh, his review of David Conway's book where he expresses exactly all of these views way back then. At that time, at that time he was nobody had any problem with. I mean, the atheists were using him as their you know, standard bearer. So, mm-hmm. I mean, when he expressed all these views, so what happened, I mean, there's no nothing new he's saying here. He said this in many forums, like on the BBC, you know, showed no sign of any kind of mental problem. <laughs> so that's, it's sour grapes. And also Richard Swinburne and I, uh, um, t- uh, Tony Flew and I had been with Richard Swinburne a year before the book came out. We had a long discussion and Swinburne gave me a signed statement saying he was of sound mind and, you know, fully conscious of what he was uh, uh, what he, I mean Swinburne has known him for over nearly 40 years and they've debated each other etc so he he said he has genuinely changed his mind and he knows what he's doing it's been a fascinating interview with journalist and author Roy Varghese who's written the official biography on Anthony Flew here there is a God how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind a great book it's a fast read Uh, It is just an outstanding book. I recommend that you pick it up there at your bookstore. Anthony Flew is a very significant figure, and for him to finally admit there is a God is 
very, very significant to one of the major thinkers of our time today. Now, next week, we're going to have Mr. Varghese back, and we're going to talk about some of the criticism this book has been receiving and some of his answers to the critics there. So, Roy, thanks for joining us this week. We look forward to seeing you next week. Look forward to it. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. There's a new feature on our website called iShows, where you can download each individual show for just 250 on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Just like you download a song on iTunes, these are iShows that you can download each individual show you want. And we've got some of the top scholars on there. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure and visit us online at evidenceandanswers.org.